affirmative action has been in the news lately with reports that the Department of Justice may direct resources into intentional race-based discrimination at universities. An OHSU physician also made headlines recently with her tweets about racism in the ED after the tragic Charlottesville events. It's Monday, August 28th, and this is OHSU Week. I'm Kelsey Hewalt, filling in for Patrick Holmes, who is on vacation. I spoke with George Mexicano, the Senior Associate Dean for Education, about affirmative action at OHSU. Well, thanks, George, for joining us. So to get started, what has been your role in diversity at OHSU? Uh, My role in diversity uh, involves um, both students uh, as well as employees. Most of my attention has actually been at the student level. And what kind of work has that included? So um, uh, one of the pieces has to do with accreditation. And so um, the uh, university has a, a number of of uh, organizations that are in, uh, involved with accrediting its educational programs. And one of them um, the, is the Liaison Committee for Medical Education, or LCME, which accredits medical schools. And so for the MD program specifically, there is a diversity standard that the accreditor actually cares deeply about. And so uh, OHSU School of Medicine um, has actually uh, had difficulty in meeting that standard. Uh, the, the, uh, the accrediting body, in this case the LCME, had said to us that um, you are too, you, that you need to focus more and declare which categories are going to be important to you, to the School of Medicine in the MD program. And we did that, and we designated those three areas um, to, that we were going to focus on to try to improve the diversity within the MD ranks, the, the student body uh, 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 itself. One of the things that we did on the scholarship side was we actually concentrated the money, and this is counterintuitive to what most people would think. So the idea is, um, uh, I'll, I'll pitch it as a dilemma. If you have, let's say, $200,000 and you have 20 applicants, do you give the dollars equally to all 20 applicants to try to um, uh, essentially uh, encourage them to matriculate into the school? Or do you actually concentrate, concentrate the dollars and say, we're gonna give four applicants $50,000 each? Well, it turns out that the better um, uh, plan, uh, the one that will actually produce outcomes, is concentrating the dollars. <laughs> so we took a lot of money and we focused it at specifically on a very small number of people, and that dramatically improved our ability to recruit particularly African-American students. So the bottom line is we have changed um, procedures, policies, and put a lot of resources to improving our numbers um, uh, and the climate of inclusion here with regards to those three what are called value-add categories. Uh, We still have a lot of work to do. Um, um, to give you a sense of numbers, and uh, in, uh, in currently in the in the student body, and this is in the MD program. I'm not including the graduate programs for now. In the MD program, 11% of our student body belong to a cat, um, self-identify as belonging to an underrepresented minority in medicine. Um, um, somewhere in the mid 30s um, is um, the group that self-identifies as being as over have overcome significant adva- disadvantage. And um, in the about 30, 31 percent um, come from a rural background. So those numbers have actually are, are actually quite good. Um, 
but on the URM side, we have to do a lot more, a lot more work. Uh, we would like it to be closer to, to 15 to 20% over the time. We've made progress. The fact that it's 11% now is much better than what it used to be, which was closer to 5%. What's the main benefit to medicine to have this diversity and to focus on these different categories? That's a great question. Um, so I want to actually frame this with the, through the lens of, of actually health uh, inequity. And so to me personally, uh, the issue here is not increasing the numbers of people of any given class within the profession, but rather um, what's actually happening in terms of health outcomes. The link here is that people that um, fall into diversity categories are actually more likely to, to, to take care of populations that are underserved. And therefore, if you recruit, for example, more Native Americans into medicine, they are much more likely to take care of Native American populations, which have, in some cases, um, poorer outcomes than other than the other populations in the United States. So, if you, I'll flip your question on a little bit, which is, when will we be done? When will we know that we're diverse enough, and that is when there are no health inequities based upon any category um, that one can think of, and that includes, for example, religion, sexual orientation, veteran status underrepresented minority, zip code, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's a question about health outcomes and the inequities that are occurring right now across the country. There are populations that have poorer outcomes, and that's not just access to health care. It's also um, has other, there's other aspects of this about why um, those health outcomes um, are different in, in one group versus another. Uh, so the answer to your question is, uh, that every person living in this country and ar arguably the world should not only have access to health care, but to have equal outcomes regardless of any category that they may belong to. California and Washington have banned affirmative action in their states. Can you give us a little rundown of the history of that and why they might do that? Sure. Uh, so uh, let me try to uh, frame this and then uh, walk through a little bit about what, what, what's happened in higher education and where things might go. Um, in the past, there were institutional policies and procedures uh, as well as, um, frankly, um, overt um, as well as implicit biases. So certain groups were excluded. In order to overcome that, uh, quotas and other mechanisms were put into place to try to essentially level the playing field and open the doors to people that had been essentially excluded from the privilege of higher education. Those processes or, and policies eventually, um, in some cases, led to uh, untoward consequences. And let me use an employment example first, and I'll come back to higher education. So the idea goes something like this. Let's say I'm a minority-owned business, and there's government contracts, and I never get a chance to bid on those contracts because I'm overlooked or I'm not told about them. And so all of a sudden, now there's a law or some policy that says you have to um, have at least X number of, minor, of, minor, of, of, of bids for minority-owned contracts. That opens the door for minority-owned businesses, for example, to um, um, benefit from those state opportunities, as an example. After, maybe even from the beginning, but at some point, if you are a non-minority owner of a business, 
you might say, well, now I am. There's a group that's that's being essentially um, that's benefiting uh, from something that I, that that's hurting me, and so this issue of reverse discrimination starts to pop up. So there were very good reasons, and it's everything from voter ID, uh, sorry, from voter laws to employment contracts to um, uh, opportunities, um, everything from sports to business, you, you name it. There's been all sorts of areas in, uh, throughout our um, uh, culture uh, in, in our history in the United States that have um, unfairly excluded certain groups. And what's happened uh, is that these, these policies and procedures were put in place to try to level the playing field. Okay, so now there's question of whether or not we've gone too far. So now I'm gonna talk about the Fisher case, which is a very famous case that went to the US Supreme Court relative to higher education. So this was a, a, a woman um, in Texas who uh, sued uh, because she was not accepted to the University of Texas at Austin. And um, what happened was that Texas had put in a policy um, that went something like this. If you were, uh, uh, in, um, if you were in the top proportion of your high school graduating class, no matter what high school you were at in Texas, you would get automatically accepted to the University of Texas at Austin. So um, I, I believe her first name is Abigail. Abigail Fisher. Um, did not get admitted to the, the, the uh, UT Austin, and she sued because she thought that she was un, being unfairly discriminated against because she had gone to a high school where there were a disproportionately large number of uh, high-caliber students, and that basically her academic qualifications were higher than people than from other high schools that were being admitted, but because she fell below the proportion, which mm -hmm. I think was 10%, um, then she did not get admitted to the university. So she sued saying, I should have gotten into UT Austin. And eventually it went all the way to the US Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically said um, something like the following, and I'm paraphrasing. Uh, this is very disturbing because in an ideal world, um, this should be a colorblind process. And therefore, um, uh, admissions to a university should be based upon merit and not upon, not upon um, any other category. However, uh, diversity is important because of these historical issues and because it adds value to the learning environment as, and, it, and it brings vibrancy uh, to the community and there are underserved areas just like we talked about in medicine, et cetera. And so therefore, we will allow this to occur but with a major caveat, which is to say you can take race into account in your admissions process, but it must be part of a holistic view of that student, or that in this case, that applicant. In other words, you can include race, but it can't be the only thing you're looking at with regards to admissions. So that's called a holistic pro pro um, process uh, or a holistic methodology to try to, to determine who gets into a class. So at OHSU and the MD program, and in fact many other programs in, uh, here at the university, we have holistic processes that we have put in place, partly because it's the right thing to do, but partly basically because the Supreme Court said you cannot use certain categories um, exclusively. Uh, the issues with diversity are not new. 
They've been here for a long, long time, and they will continue to be here for a long, long time. What I think is different is two things. The first is there's a collective awareness that's at a much higher level now than there has been in the past. And um, you can think about or, or point to different um, situations that have occurred at the national level. For example, the, uh, what happened in Ferguson or what happened in Minneapolis, uh, what happened um, um, in, uh, in Dallas, uh, and all the, the issues around police violence, particularly uh, against African Americans specifically. Regardless of the cause, the awareness is definitely at a higher level. Um, and so there's a lot of um, scrutiny, if you will, or, around these issues at this time that they haven't, they've always been there, but it seems that there's more, that the volume has been turned up. I expect, and this is gonna sound a little counterintuitive, that, that things will actually appear to be worse when they're actually getting better. And I'm gonna make, I'm gonna use an, an, an infectious disease example um, there was an outbreak of cryptosporidium in the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, uh, many years ago. And when that happened, some people said, that's terrible. The water supply in that city and the public health system in that city must be bad. When in fact, actually picking up more cases was actually a, a, a sign that the system was working. So I actually expect more turbulence, more discourse, more issues around diversity um, over the next few years because they actually are a sign that things that were covert are now overt, that we've taken things out of the shadows and we're actually paying attention to them now. And so awareness is a key to moving uh, the agenda forward and making actually um, important improvements. So I guess my last question is what you really think OHSU needs to do now. All of us have a role to play with regards to these issues. And if we act together, then I'm highly confident that not just OHSU, but Portland, Oregon, and the nation can actually move beyond these troubled times with regards to diversity. However, if we believe that it's someone else's problem and that we don't engage in this, then I think that's gonna be a much more difficult lift. I also talked with Esther Chu, an associate professor in emergency medicine, who made headlines with her tweets about racism in the ED. Well, Esther, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how long have you practiced medicine? I graduated from residency in 2005, so I've been out for about 12 years. Did you ever think that you would come across racism in the ED when you first started? No, it never even occurred to me. I mean, I, I think of myself as just myself. You know, I don't think of myself as here I am and a person of color and a female walking into a hospital room. And yet that's what patients see often when you come in. And I was thinking back this week to when I started out in medical school and residency. And I don't remember having that exact dialogue. I don't remember anyone ever telling me, you know, as a physician of color, as a woman, you're going to have certain experiences with patients. Um, this is what you should expect. It's, it's invariably going to happen. And here are some strategies you can use to respond to them or, or, or even just preparing me so that I wasn't surprised. And the early incidents of, of that happening were surprising to me and kind of caught me off guard. What advice would you give to newly graduating doctors? Well, I, I think that's a dialogue we need to have. I mean, if someone approaches me, I certainly would share experiences I've had and just explain that 
in the hospital, we take care of everybody. Uh, we're not selective about our, about our patients, and so you're you're definitely going to encounter all sorts of views. And so I think the first thing is to just to raise awareness and make sure that people are mentally prepared, that they're not shocked, um, that when they go into new jobs, uh, that they ask what the hospital um, policies are and know what resources they have when they do encounter racism of any kind or any other ism, uh, any type of prejudice. And then I think uh, on a national level, we need to have conversations at medical schools, at hospitals, and figure out how we're going to support our physicians who are experiencing this on a regular basis. Um, Figure out how we can best uh, create an environment where people walk in and know that certain types of behaviors are not acceptable. Um, And then also help our physicians kind of uh, decompress after these episodes, you know, have a chance to talk about it and be supportive, Um, uh, have a chance to vent to each other, certainly, but also to um, to recognize how it might be affecting them as physicians, affecting the morale and their confidence and their feelings about practicing. You know, we um, as we value diversity in healthcare more and more, we're thinking, how do we recruit pa- uh, physicians of different backgrounds or, or practitioners of all kinds of different backgrounds to medicine? It's a harder thing to do if part of what they have to experience is um, is racism or sexism uh, or bigotry uh, against any specific group. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's like saying this is a, an incredibly rigorous training that you're about to encounter. And on top of that, we're going to add this extra thing that you have to endure on a day-to-day basis. So I think it, uh, unless we address it well, we're not really creating an environment where everybody can come in and, uh, and be a physician. Which is unfortunate. Since you've tweeted, have you noticed more of a camaraderie within the ED or just generally at OHSU? I have found the response to be very supportive and very heartwarming. So for me personally, it's just been nice to have conversations with my colleagues that I've never had before. Uh, about the fact that these happen. Many people have said, I've seen this happen before and I didn't know how to respond. It's opened up a dialogue, but it also has, um, yeah, it has allowed me to get to know my colleagues a little bit better and and feel very confident uh, about their feelings toward toward bigotry in the healthcare setting and, and just know for sure that they would all support me. So it was, it's been tremendously supportive here at OHSU. Did you expect when you tweeted um, that to happen? No. The response. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, uh, you know, I have a, a pretty tight network of other physicians, a lot of other physician moms, and I generally am tweeting to them. You know, mm-hmm. there's kind of like a handful of people that I'm speaking to that I think of when I'm putting out the tweet. So, you know, a lot of our emergency medicine physicians or, um, or we have our public health um professionals and I, I was just kind of thinking of those of kind of my handful of, of, of online friends and colleagues and I thought this is a story they might appreciate you know and um, early on uh, I was also by the way I was also just trapped in the car with my sleeping toddler and so part of this whole thing was that I was sitting there bored with my phone and I was like hey why don't I put this out so yeah the whole thing was just kind of I'll put this out there for I, I can think of a few people who would appreciate it. And then, you know, I put my phone away. I had an overnight shift that night, you know, and then I came out and uh, and I realized that it, it had started to get disseminated pretty widely. And so, no. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I did not expect it at all. You brought it up a little bit. Is sexism also a major issue? Yeah, it is. Uh, your gender, if you're a woman, is not separate. Is not. Uh, it's not possible to separate that from your experience as a physician. I think there are a lot of ways in which uh, medicine still presumes that the majority of physicians are going to be male, um, and also makes the presumption that women are not as capable of being physicians or of being truly committed physicians. Um, so it is certainly um, part of experience with patients. Um, and you know, as a woman, you'll get similar comments like, um, you must be the nurse, or you know, you'll come in as the physician, introduce yourself as the physician, spend a lot of time in that room, um, explain to the patient their diagnosis and the management plan you've decided. You walk out, and then the patient complains they've never seen a physician, just a really nice nurse. I think that is a universal experience for women in medicine, um, but it also is on the other side. I think from training onwards, um, the women get different feedback from. Their preceptors, they are encouraged to take different career pathways. The leadership positions are not as open to them. They are paid less systematically, even um, when you control for almost anything that you can control for, the part-time work, the cho choice of specialty, their clinical productivity. Um, women are undervalued in medicine. And so certainly being a woman in medicine is, is a very specific experience um, and it, it still feels like there's a lot of work to be done in this area to make it equitable for women. As a doctor, um, do you find it difficult if a patient refuses service? Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's it's different now that I'm in my mid-career. Yeah. Um, and I think now that I've had a number of years of practice behind me, and I'm used to dealing with all kinds of situations in the emergency department, I think I'm better able to just say, this is a, this is a, a challenge, but um, here is how we're going to approach it. You know, there's a few things you need to do to make sure the patient is stable, that they are, have the capacity to refuse care, um, if that's what they're doing. Um, I feel more confident in sort of separating out my personal feelings from my intent for the patient, which is just to, to deliver the best health care that I can. Um, and I also feel pretty good at... Um, it's sort of recognizing that the problem is in them, it's not in me. And I think when you're a young physician and you're feeling really vulnerable and insecure, you tend to internalize some of the racism that you encounter. Uh, I think to articulate it, uh, although it's hard to articulate this, just this gut feeling that you have, I think part of it is you wonder if they have, uh, if there's something in their belief, you know? Am I, maybe I'm not as qualified to be a doctor. I mean, it yeah. sounds ridiculous to say that because this patient says they don't like Asian doctors, that, that you then walk away and think maybe, I'm, maybe they're right. I mean, that sounds, when I say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But I do think early on that you're, you're pretty vulnerable to internalizing some of that. And I think now that I'm, I'm a more seasoned physician, I can, I can just completely leave it on the patient's side. You know, I, I recognize you come in here with whatever preconceived notion of broad groups of people that has very little to do with me. Uh, I know where I stand as a physician. I'm just going to offer you the care that I can give um, and, uh, and believe that I'm doing the best that I can for you. Um, and I think I can do that and try to maintain a good relationship, um, even recognizing that you may not be entirely happy with your care simply because I look a certain way, whether it's my gender or my race or some combination of that. So, um, 
So it's, you know, it's still a little bit of a challenge, but I think I'm getting better and better at it every year. How would you recommend that people get better at that and don't internalize? I think it's key to talk about it. I think the har- the most harmful thing is when we just don't talk about it and validate these experiences. Um, what I've heard from physicians this week is a lot of people say, I don't feel like I can talk about it. I feel embarrassed to talk about it. I've talked about it before and people have dismissed it saying, oh, I don't think the patient meant that. You're exaggerating or you must have misheard the patient or it's not a big deal. You know, none of us feel that way. It's not a big deal. I think we need to recognize that that's a harmful thing. You know, it's it's a hard thing to face, especially for a new physician. And I think we need to encourage people to talk about it, give them a specific route to talk about it, and then figure out together how we equip our young physicians to go in there and deal with it um, so that they're not, uh, that it, you know, they're, they're kind of not knocked down or discouraged from moving forward in their careers confidently. So how do you can plan on continuing that dialogue? That's a really good question. I mean, this has been less than two weeks um, since I put out the Twitter thread, and I'm still actually combing through the responses that I got. Um, I am starting to reach out to some physicians who seem very deeply invested in this topic and um, and seeing if we can make a plan to move forward with the dialogue. I'm working with OHSU's um, Office of Diversity to uh, see if we can uh, use the the policies of our hospital and the approach of our hospital and offer that to other hospitals because I think we actually do it very well here. I mean, in December, Joe Robertson, our president, put out a very clear statement about refusals for care based on race, ethnicity, and creed. Um, it was a wonderful thing to read as a physician of color, um, but I think in there he said, to be clear, we do not honor these requests You know, for, for physicians who are of a different um, who are a different race. And so um, I think there are ways in which uh, OHSU does it well. And, you know, it would be nice to identify the other hospitals that are models of excellence around supporting diversity in their healthcare workforce and then making those types of policies and approaches readily available so hospitals that don't feel as far along in this but wish to get better can access them easily. What advice are you going to give your toddler as he grows, he or she? Yeah, I mean, so I've got four kids. Um, that one was sleeping. but um, So I have a, a almost 10-year-old and 5-year-old twins and then this little one that was taking a nap who's two. And um, for the older ones, these things are just starting to come to their awareness. You know, they are going to school and having people ask them where they're from. You know, and they're um, they're noticing that some of their peers have different skin tones and they are wondering what that means. Um, And I think, you know, I want my kids to, you know, I want my kids to understand that um, that that is the country that we're in, that people are of all sorts of backgrounds um, and that we respect and love people uh, for things that are inside them and not their skin tone. Um, I, I, and also to sort of recognize and appreciate and rejoice in our, in our race and cultural differences mm-hmm. um, and to be curious about them and to find out as much as can they can about them and to, um, you know, to hopefully have a group of friends that is, that is extremely diverse um, so that they can learn a wide range of viewpoints. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of the comments I've had this week are about 
being colorblind. And that's not something I want for my kids. I don't think it's possible. <laughs> I don't even think it's a thing. Um, but I would never want my kids to not see color. I think that it's like one of the most interesting things in life is seeing somebody who's so different from you and learning about their backgrounds. And then your brain kind of grows more and explodes and you... Um, especially when you get to know other people and are receptive uh, to hearing their viewpoints and appreciating the, the differences in their culture and their upbringing and their experiences. So um, I hope my kids will be, I really want them to be adventurers. You know, we're not, we're not like, physical adventurers. We don't go, you know, mountain climbing around here like a lot of people do. We're not, we're not leaping off, you know, cliff walls and, and with a glider or anything. But I want my kids to be really, um, you know, adventurous when it comes to to culture and background, race, ethnicity, you know, any difference from them. I hope that they're, they're intellectually um, and emotionally curious and, uh, and really engage with people who are different for them. That's what I'd hope for them um, because I think that's, you know, that leads to understanding and, um, and I think is ultimately the answer to racism and all the other is isms that we struggle with. That was really nicely put. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending the time and talking to us. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. OHSU Week is a production of Strategic Communications. This episode was produced and edited by me. I'm Kelsey Hewell. I'll see you next week, and Patrick Holmes will return for the September 11th episode.